tomorrow today. Regulate, assimilate, open the banks. The special guest, Julie Bateman. If you've never read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful account of early American society and and the life of this truly remarkable person. It's written in just such a contemporary style. It's very approachable, very readable. It's just a fun, ripping good read. One of my favorite stories in it is Franklin's description of his first arrival in Philadelphia. And he talks about how he took a ship from Long Island, New York, to Philadelphia because that was the, the best way to travel. And on the way there, they encounter some bad weather. And so the ship takes longer than expected to reach Philadelphia Harbor. And Franklin, by the time they get off the ship, is famished. And so he talks about how he walks down Market Street, which, by the way, still called Market Street, in the middle of Philadelphia. And he goes into the first shop he can find for something to eat, and it's a bakery. And so Franklin walks into this store, he's famished, he drops a note on the counter, and he says, I want bread. How much do you want, the shopkeeper says, as much as I can get with this, this piece of currency he gives him. And the currency is actually a bill from New York. At the time, the different states had their own currency, and so there had to be an exchange rate uh, in effect. And, and Franklin had no idea what it was. He didn't care at this point, he was just hungry. And so... He talks about how the baker loads his, loads his arms with loaves of bread, and Franklin depicts himself walking down Market Street with loaves of bread falling all over the place, and ducks are chasing after him. It's absolutely hysterical, but it's also a great reminder of the fact that currency, those notes, those bills that we take for granted as being money, really aren't worth anything other than the fact that we say they are, right? Gold, at least, is somewhat objective. but Currency, fiat currency, money, is only worth something because the government says it's worth something. And those denominations, what those bills are worth, are just a matter of changing the writing on the bill. If it's a $10 or a $20 bill, when you think about it, it's just changing one digit. If it's a $100 bill, it's just because we write 100 on it. You know, speaking of denominations, if you ever see a picture in my office, you'll know I have an incredible collection of what I think of as treasures. And among my mementos is a gift I was given when I talked about this very topic with officers of the Federal Reserve Bank. To thank me for my service and to thank me for coming to speak to them, they decided to pay me by giving me a $100 trillion bill from the Bank of Zimbabwe. It's only worth about 40 cents US, but that's the point, right? Just because there's $100 trillion written on the front of the note, what does that actually mean? What does that make it worth? The denominations denoted on scraps of paper don't necessarily actually mean anything. You know, Nell Ferguson points out in his wonderful book, The Ascent of Money, A Financial History of the World, he says, the value of money comes from the value we as a society place in it, not from its inherent worth. With the exception of gold or silver coins, physical money itself, nothing, right? It's not worth paper it's written on almost quite literally. Paper and base metal coins, you know, they have very little intrinsic value also. They're worth, I can remember when I was a kid, they were melting down copper, uh, excuse me, melting down pennies because the copper was worth more than the coins. What, what's really staggering when you think about it is the fact that the majority of money in the world doesn't even really exist. It's entirely virtual and it can be transferred electronically across the world without ever materializing physically. 
Now, whether physical or virtual, these worthless tokens are accepted as holders of value because, again, we as societies place value on them. But the global economy is quickly moving away from money that folds or makes noise in your pocket. You know, I was recently in New York, and a cafe I went into had a sign, they no longer accept cash. Think about that for a minute, right? We're getting to a place where cash is becoming more the rarity than the common mechanism of exchange. And that leaves me wondering, what is the world going to look like as we continue down this path to a cashless or at least a less cash economy? And in thinking about those things, I was thrilled that our guest accepted my invitation. Julie Bateman is a leading expert in digital banking and innovation in the financial sector. Over the better part of the past two decades, as you know, the, the banking and financial sectors have, have exploded, they've undergone, I think, more significant changes than perhaps at any time in history. Julie's been at the forefront, establishing herself as the go-to expert on connecting business and technology. She has a, a truly astounding resume, a true passion for innovating business models, creating compelling visions, and championing enterprise change that drives significant business outcomes. I could go on and on. The breadth and depth of Julie's expertise related to corporate strategy, developing effective partnerships at all levels of the organization to drive complex transformational initiatives, and, well, to the point of this conversation, uh, and what I'm looking forward to talking to her today, her deep digital knowledge. Make her the perfect person to talk to about something I've been hearing a lot about lately, and maybe you have too, open banking. So I'm hoping we can shed some light on how understanding the open banking concept can help us better prepare for tomorrow today. Julie, thanks for your patience as you listen to my long lead-in. Uh, welcome to the show. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you, JT. I hope to live up to that intro. And I found, um, you know, how you started out to be fascinating you know, I didn't know that we're not supposed to take pictures of currency. So note to self, <laughs> no <laughs> more know, photographs. Well, I'll get you worse than that. Um, when I used to talk about this when I was uh, teaching at the university, I would make the point that a dollar bill has no inherent value other than for BTUs, right? It can produce energy. And I would light the bill on fire. And then I found out that's a felony. So I stopped doing that. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> yeah. you know, lighting it on fire either. Okay. <laughs> you know, not cool. Not cool. Don't mess with the money. And, uh, you know, you can get away with a lot in our country, but don't mess with the money. That's that's really it. But, you know, it, it's funny, Julie. As I look at your, your bio, which blows my socks off, what, what kind of occurs to me is I have defined my career as being working at the intersection of technology and psychology. But when I look at yours, I think of you working more at the intersection of technology, strategy, operations, right? Forgive me, I mean it as a compliment, but you're not just a geek, right? You're an applied geek. You're, you're somebody who can help these organizations that you work with, help these entities be able to employ, deploy, utilize, leverage technology most effectively for their business. Is that a fair summation? Oh, absolutely. Um, for those that are really close to what digital is, you know, it really is the synthesis of business strategy and operations brought to life through technology. So I kind of hang out and really have to orchestrate across all of those things. And what I love about it is the complexity. Uh, it's very dynamic. It's complex. I've been known to say it hurts so good. <laughs> you know, anytime you touch on these matters, if you want to change your business model or you want to change a technology, you're going to immediately hit up against 
uh, legal implications and technical implications. And you know what I mean? Like there's just so many great places to really um, tap into, I don't know, just using your higher level thinking to try to overcome the challenges. Yeah. You know, I, I think you make such an important point there. So many organizations I, I've talked to over the years, they think, I don't know, old technology is like you plug it in and everything is fine. Uh, I talk to organizations about these advanced, you know, AI, machine learning systems and all this. Oh, yeah, we got to get us one of those. And I'm reminded when I was young, a lot younger, this is back in the 80s, uh, my brother and I got one of the first microwave ovens. And it was actually a commercial microwave that we were living in New York and it fell off the back of a truck. And uh, so we get this thing, we bring it to the apartment and uh, we go to plug it in. And of course it's, you know, 220. We have, you know, just standard voltage. So we strip off the the plug at the end and we put a standard plug. We're young, we're stupid. And we plug it in and it blows out all the fuses. So we put a penny in uh, the fuse box, which, you know, anyone who's listening, really bad idea. And so we put a penny in and then we tried to cook a pork chop. <laughs> Of all things, it's microwave. <laughs> this is not going to end well. <laughs> and we're like, this microwave sucks. You know, it blows out our lights. It can't cook a pork chop. And I, to me, whenever I hear about people not taking seriously exactly what you're talking about, that's sort of the vision that goes in my head. And don't, don't you see that just too often that companies get enamored of the hot, cool new tech and they don't think about the strategic, the operational, the human implications of, of moving in those directions. Oh, absolutely. You know, I've been, um, you know, in situations many, many times when I have to pan out and go, why isn't this working? We got the right tech. <laughs> you know, we ask all the right questions in the RFP. We did our requirements. What's the issue here? And it's normally a human issue. It's a people issue. It's change management. Our people aren't all bought into what this means for them. And so many, many times, the tech just isn't the issue. It's sort of those other things, right? It's the people in the process. Yeah, that's when my wife usually asks me, did you plug it in? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant tech, plug it in. So more to the point at hand, you know, I, I've been hearing a lot about uh, fintech is the, the hot buzzword right now. You know, everyone's talking about fintech. We go in waves and we talk about, you know, whether it's blockchain or AI, but fintech seems to be persistent. We've been talking about fintech now for I would say it's become one of the top topics for at least the last 10 years, probably. Everyone's talking about this. And I, to be clear, frank, I'm not all that clear. Of course, I know traditional banking. I have some insight into this concept of open banking and fintech. Can you help me understand that a little bit better? What are, what are we talking about with open banking? How does that contrast with traditional banking? Well, let's unpack this a little bit. So um, kind of like you began, let's go a little bit further back in time. You know, prior to the invention of digital banking, if you will, banking was a really closed system. You know, the bank really pushed their operational processes back on the client. Think about you know, the days of 2 p.m. cutoff times and mm. things like that, right? Got to rush to the bank. I've got to stand in line. I've got to deposit my payroll check. It's going to post at this time, those kinds of things, right? Closed system. We can really, you know, impress the way we need to do it on you, client. And this is the rules of how we work. So fast forward, you know, digital banking starts to change those rules a little bit. Um, and so we saw really the earliest examples of, fintech or financial technology that started to go 
uh, beyond banking all the way back then. When you think about uh, softwares that you could download your banking uh, transaction information, you can do your taxes, you know where I'm going, those kinds of things. That was yeah. really the very beginning of fintech. And so now we're on the roller coaster, right? But we don't really realize that we're on the roller coaster for a couple reasons. Number one, uh, how you know pervasive was the use of digital banking in the early days, right? Like it went everything from sending you a disk that you had to, you know, install on sure. your computer, if you remember that, right? Like who yeah. the heck was using that fancy new thing all the way up to, you know, today where we talk about things like mobile first, you know what I mean? So we've been on this roller coaster on this ride where fintech has been bubbling up. And so, yeah. you know, we're going from this really closed system to today, uh, I'm going to talk about open banking in terms of how we're moving towards a more open system. And when you talk about closed systems, what I also hear you saying is intermediated systems, right? So it, it's not, I actually don't work with the other party. I work through a bank, right? So if I want to pay, you know, my mechanic, who I pay way too much, but I want to pay my mechanic <laughs> or the grocery store, I'm actually not paying ShopRite when I pick up those groceries. I'm being intermediated in this really closed system you're talking about. You know, when we roll back the clock a couple of years, when I was a kid, long before you were a kid, uh, we, we would literally have to write a paper check, right? And that paper check, to your point, they couldn't just cash. They had to go down during, quote unquote, banker's hours and put that check in. That check had to clear. It was this, you know, really extracted process. And then we evolved to your point, you know, we come up with like the SWIFT system that's able to do interbank transfers. Would you say that this has sort of been continuous development or, or are things truly speeding up quite a bit over the last couple of years? Well, I think they're speeding up. It's been continuous, yeah. but the path that got us there, I'm going to geek out for a minute um, as a banker. So you had to think that you know, banking, you had to actually exchange that check instrument at one point, right? Like that was the instrument. Then we had some regulation that made it possible where you could use an image of that instrument, the check, and you could destroy the check. You know what I mean? So there have been baby steps that are kind of getting us to this point so that banking can operate in what I'm going to say a more technically forward environment. So we, those baby steps were important, but all of a sudden we kind of got some of these things in place and it could just take off. Technology caught up. Uh, consumer expectations really um, started to accelerate because if you look outside of financial services, that's really what's pushing uh, banks to try to keep up, right? So it is what's going on with Facebook and sure. Amazon and Netflix and all of those things, right? So we might have liked operating in a closed system, but all of a sudden you are dealing with customers that their expectations are starting to be set outside of financial services. Like, hey, if I can download, you know, the, the latest blockbuster movie in seconds from Netflix, why do I have to go and stand in line at the bank during banker's hours to deposit my check and so on and so forth. So yeah. there have been a lot of forces sort of bringing us to this point of, I would say, exponential change in financial services. You know, it, it's it's so interesting. You mentioned that a um, bunch of reasons. I actually just got a check yesterday and I took a picture of it and I you know, deposited it in the account and I don't do banking. 
my wonderful wife, way smarter than I am, she handles all the money in our house. I get access to an allowance, and that's about it, which is why we, you know, can pay the mortgage. Uh, so I've I've only done this like probably four or five times in my life, and I remember starkly the first time I did it, I thought, no. Come on, this can't work. I'm just taking a picture of this, sending it in via app, and they're going to credit this money, and they tell me I can just destroy this check. And the check right now is sitting on my wife's desk because I re- she told me, well, yeah, you can just throw that out now. I, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> make me nervous. That's money. <laughs> and so, you know, it, but but then you also, when you're talking about this, this disintermediation, you know, I'll, I'll use this as a phrase, just this last week, I noticed that uh, Amazon stopped allowing you to directly purchase book through the Android hosted Kindle app. And uh, you can't buy, uh, I don't know if if you know, but you can't buy a book through your Android based Kindle application anymore. And I was curious why. And I went on and I found out that um, Google tells Amazon, we now want 15% of the take for every transaction. And wow, talk about you know, maybe not coming full circle, but into a whole new circle. Uh, we were at a time when banks, to your point, you know, banks sort of ruled the financial transactions in the world and we disintermediated them. And now we have these new intermediaries uh, like Google and Facebook and some of these that have grown so large that you have to wonder, I, I don't know, uh, is that really right-sizing us? Is that moving more toward or away from an open banking concept? That is? And by the way, before we go there, we talked about traditional banking. Tell me a little more about open banking, and then we can kind of get back to whether or not this is more along the lines of open banking. So what what is open banking by contrast? What's that really about? Well, technically, I don't think there's an agreed upon definition of open banking, if you can believe it. <laughs> uh, but in general, uh, what it is, is, you know, banks sharing data with the customer's permission with some third party. And generally, these third parties are building uh, apps or processes, things like that, that reside outside of the traditional financial services. And the reason why this is a thing, while we're even talking about it, is because it's a proof point that we've gone from this really closed banking system to an open system where just look at, you know, people's behaviors. They're not going to their bank's mobile and digital banking apps to do everything like they did in, you know, days of yonder. You know what I mean? Sure. Now they're going to um, Robinhood and Acorn and, you know, I could name you a list of, you know, thousands right now of, you know, companies that have emerged under the um, category of fintech, Right. And so really the heart of all of this uh, open banking is open banking, that sharing of that data from the bank with the client's permission to these third parties is what's allowing all of that new innovation, all of these new entrants to the markets. That's what's allowing, you know, that to occur is really something as simple as, you know, sharing the the client's data is making, you know, banking so it's no longer closed. Not only is it open, but there's brand new ecosystems that are being created, which is why you're seeing so much time, energy, and focus being pumped into what's going on in the fintech space. So the concept of sharing information, I mean, it just seems straightforward and logical. It's something that probably we should have been doing for, you know, thousands of years, if not hundreds of years. But what you're telling me, as I understand it, Julie, is is these 
advances we've made in technology now makes it more possible, makes it more readily uh, uh, plausible to be able to share this information. And at the heart of that, I understand, or something near and dear to my heart, is this notion of APIs or application programming interfaces. If you wouldn't mind for our listeners, share a little of your thoughts about that and, and what that's really about. So when I started to dig into open banking, one of the first things that I realized is that the idea of clients sharing their data uh, wasn't a new concept. It had been around for a while. It was going on way back when, you know, clients would download their transaction data into those softwares that we talked about earlier, right? Mm -hmm. But um, the technology that was available at that time Um, was screen scraping. And so I'll tell you a little bit about what screen scraping is because the importance of it is that it's not as secure as APIs or application program interfaces, right? So clients have been doing this, um, but doing it by you share your uh, login credentials. So you put in your username and your password. Oftentimes that third party stores that data and then goes out and sort of impersonates you going to whatever website it is uh, that has said information. And you sort of use bots, if you will, or some kind of auto script to grab. uh, And you can grab anything that's on the screen, right? So this has been going on, but to the end consumer, you probably didn't know that that process of screen scraping was what you were invoking uh, when you were quote unquote to you downloading your banking information or you were enrolling in a fintech app like you don't know this is going on so the point is that data sharing has been happening right yeah but it's been happening in a pretty uh unsecure way yeah pretty slapdash i mean you know to your point when, when we first started doing this i mean we thought it was ridiculous when you'd send a three and a half inch floppy disk to someone but at least then hopefully you had it encrypted or you were transferring it by courier or even, you know, back even before that magnetic tape or whatever it was. And you transfer this from one physically from one place to another. So basically you transferred via postage stamp. And I think the, the sort of implicit assumption most people make is when I authorize these, you know, third parties to be able to engage in that transaction. Okay. The zeros and ones are flowing between them and the bank. And what you're telling me is, no, what they're really doing is doing a copy and paste job and getting access to your screens and inputting your data, your credentials, and have access as a consequence to information that you may or may not be thrilled about. Is that Summit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I really knew this was going on, so here's some questions that bubble up for me. Wait, are you storing my credentials? Yeah. What happens if there's a data breach? Did you only scrape the data that I thought you were scraping, which is like maybe my checking account transactions? Oh, you mean you you were able to scrape my investment balances as well? Like lots of things start to happen, right? And you're authorized in my account. So, you know, and I'll push back on you. You're not, you said if you get hacked, (laughs) when inevitably you get hacked, uh, and how are you storing my information? It, it, how much confidence do I have that that's, you know, double super secret encrypted with homomorphic encryption? Or something? No, it's probably just laying there in, in your servers to, to be poached. So I guess the move up would be to move from that web scraping, screen scraping more toward or, or not more toward, but to 
utilizing APIs. So why isn't everyone just doing this? Why bother with screen scraping? Why not just go right to using APIs if you're one of these, especially if you're one of the fintechs or if you're one of the established banks? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. So early days, it was all about screen scraping. Then as APIs came on the scene, um, there started to be this realization like, wait, if we're going to do this, we being the banks, you know, we believe we should share the client's data if they, you know, um, provide permission to share it, right? Like, I don't really think banks are like, sorry, we're not going to share your data, but we're regulated. Sure. And so we have to find ways to do that securely, right? Ah. FinTech, not regulated. Bank, regulated. So banks, when we started to dig into, hey, what is this concept that sort of started over in Europe of sharing data, this open banking, we're like, sure, we're happy to open up the bank and share clients' data, but we have to do so securely, right? Um, and so as we got into that, that's where you started to see the big uh, focus on APIs. And so in a bank, there's two forms of APIs. There's the internal APIs that power your applications. And then there's external APIs. This is normally uh, different environments for an added leader of security, right? Where you're like, okay, these are the endpoints we're going to expose externally. And so the reason why you're not seeing this just be done is because think about the variation in the size of banks and how banks deliver technology. Mm. Like you spend a lot of time doing this. There's a lot of variation there, right? Sure. And absolutely. Look, I, and I've worked with some of the bigger ones. I've worked with, you know, JP Morgan and Bank of America and UBS Payne, wherever Merrill Lynch, some of these big, big, big ones. And they don't frankly care about some little fintech who wants to integrate as effectively as possible with them. It's, it's not up to them. It's not their business model on the one hand, but you raise another couple of, of very interesting points I'd never really thought about is all the regulations the banks uh, must abide by. And particularly in these domains, you know, there are three that come to mind is the uh, anti-money laundering, the countering the financing of terrorism, the know your customer regulations that anyone who engages in the international banking community has to adhere to these laws. And basically, you know, we we have to know who we're transacting through, but the fintechs may or may not feel the same obligation or fall under the same statute or the same regulation is what you're telling me. And so, and now I, I would assume the banks potentially have exposure. If they're just going to open themselves up to these institutions, you know, are, are we inviting uh, a problem? So on the one hand, the banks aren't necessarily incented to deal with these fintechs. On the other hand, uh, they could actually suffer harm. But then on the other side of that coin, the fintechs are providing a service that, well, let's face it, consumers like and they want it. Yeah. Let's, uh, let me take a go at that because there's a lot there, right? So first is why would a bank do this, right? It seems like a headache. We have to open up, you know, standing up these external API gateways and the APIs and all of that is expensive, right? Um, the reason why you want to do it is because, you know, it's customer expectations and you can't just stick your head in the sand. Huh. So banks sort of had this decision to make, right? It was going to be beat them, uh, beat the fintechs, right? Or join them. Uh, and it definitely weighs out um, that banks really aren't going to be able to compete head-to-head -head on every item with fintechs because fintechs wake up in the morning with normally a much narrower scope, right? They're going to really try to pull that one 
thing off with such excellence. So, you know, it didn't take banks very long to figure out this is going to need to be a join them uh, type of opportunity because we can't compete. You know, consumers expect it, so on and so forth. So we, we solve for that. We, we have to do this thing. But we are regulated, so we have to do it securely. And the regulations that apply here are deep. There's also privacy laws. There's third-party risk management. And so there have been some things in the media lately where, you know, the fintechs don't have the regulators coming in. They don't have internal audit saying, did you check this box? Did you do this? Did you do that? There have been some, you know, lawsuits that have gone on because that same type of care isn't necessarily there. So I would say that amounts to the burden is just a little bit higher on banks to do this and do it right because they're regulated entities. Yeah, well, and to your point also, it it is not just the consumer expectation uh, of service and and enjoying what they're getting from the fintechs. To my thinking, it's also banks were banks, right? You talk about back in the days of It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart, right? It was you know, this was this most trusted institution you had. And ever since, you know, I'll argue the crash of 1929, but then you talk about savings and loan scandals and you talk about some of what's happened over the last couple of years. It's not like people have that same affinity for the bank. I, sorry to bash them, but I don't love Bank of America. I just, you know what? They're they're a bank. They provide a service to me. Uh, And if I can find some fintech that makes life easier for me, that it's more convenient for me, that offers me more or charges me less, I'm going to think about it. And, you know, I think also uh, you would agree, Julie, most people don't really think as much about the security as much as they think about the opportunity, right? They think about, you know, it, why do we surf websites where we know they're implanting cookies and they're tracking our behaviors and all this sort of thing. And, you know, everyone says that they like privacy, but nobody minds using Google Maps on their phone or, or you know, any anything that's tracking their behavior. I think we see some of that same thing with fintech, don't you? I don't think the consumer transparency has been there, right? Like yeah. when I started to yeah. talk about screen scraping or when I talk about it with pretty much any audience, you know, it's sort of like, what? Wait a minute. You know, slow down. <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. You know, there's not yeah. a lot of transparency. And so we talked about how APIs are just inherently more secure than this screen scraping, Right. But there are all these consortiums that exist, um, you know, most of the financial institutions are a part of because open banking isn't regulated uh, in the U.S. like it is in Europe. But there's an industry movement towards wanting to be able to share consumer uh, data, be able to share it um, securely, but you have to have standards, right? So when you start to get into this how Um, There's all these, you know, like I said, these different groups that are trying to figure out what's the standards, how do you do it securely, you know, meaning what does your security protocols need to look like. And, you know, the added benefit for consumers is that comes with some standards around how you do consumer-based permissioning, right? So it's going to take some of this stuff out of the shadows where... Uh, I, as the end consumer, am just trying to take full advantage of what this fintech, you know, app has to offer, you know, brings it, you know, more into the light. It makes it more transparent for the consumer. It's done more securely. You know, there, there's going to be legal agreements around this. No longer is it going to be, I don't even know the third party that's scraping my bank 
you know, screens, the bank and the third party don't even have to have a relationship. Like, you know what I mean? We're really putting together what I would say is a model that, you know, solves for uh, consumer um, transparency. It should solve for privacy, security, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. I I mean, moving in the right direction, but to your point also, you know, legislation typically trails far behind technology. And even before we get to regulation, we need some sort of standardization. You know, I was just reading, I think about a week ago, week and a half ago, that the uh, the European Union is now going to require all cell phones and handheld electronic devices in the U- EU to have a USB-C charging point by 2024, which I, I know sounds to some people listening like a non sequitur, but think about that. How many charging cables we have and all this, you know, you, if you're like me, you have a drawer full of these darn things and every device has something different. Well, those of you who don't work with APIs every day, uh, like Julie does, like I do, uh, may not realize that there is no standard, right? My API and your API have pretty much nothing to do with each other. We have the, you know, the one standard of what's called the REST architecture, the representational state transfer or RESTful APIs, but even that's kind of amorphous. It's a bit vague, a bit fuzzy. Uh, do you think there's going to be a move toward standardization of APIs so that these third-party entities, so the banks, so all these people can start to work together? Are we going to overcome this Tower of Babel anytime soon, do you think? Yeah, well, there's this organization um, called uh, the Financial Data Exchange, it's a consortium of banks and non-banks have come together and they literally take it use case by use case. Um, you can call it data bundle by data bundle, right? And they're uh, creating these uh, standards. It's the FDX standard, if you will. But it's like anything. It's like when you were creating the dictionary, right? So if you go to the FDX Uh, library and you say, well, what are the APIs you have standards for, right? They've written, you know, so many uh, API standards and you might be like, darn, you got a lot of standards here, but you don't have a standard for the one that I need. So we're kind of laying down the tracks as we're trying to go over them. And so, you know, as we sit here today, um, if you want to think about who are the winners and the losers in this, because, you know, I love to think about business model changes and like, what does this mean? Right. What does this mean for banks, for clients, for for fintechs? Yeah. You have to think that clients are going to benefit here. Right. Because what I said is we're moving away from this closed system where your only option is to go to your bank and we've opened it up. Now you have more choice. Right. That looks like competition. You can go and do this with a lot of different providers. We've made that possible for you. Oh, and I said, and we're going to try to make it, you know, easy and secure for you and, you know, um, pretty um, ubiquitous. You know what I mean? It's not like we're going to say this fintech can have it, that one can't. There's going to be like some minimal vetting. So there's some definite upside here for the client. And so what's the advantage of that? And if you wouldn't mind, speculate a little bit for from two vantage points for the business and for the consumer are there advantages for both in our uh advancing this agenda if we had a magic wand and we could cast a perfect future and we could say like the eu is saying with with their devices all having the same charging point by 2024 which by the way two years right wow if we could through legislation through fiat through an executive order whatever we could say there will be a standard for APIs, for for this inter 
uh, financial institution communication. And do I care about that if A, I'm a consumer or B, I'm an organization or a company and why? I think if you're a consumer, it's probably going to be one of those hidden things still in the transaction. You know what I mean? Like, think about it. How many people really know the underlying workings with that mobile check deposit uh, process you talked about earlier? Do they really care? Is they? I call it, you just want to get banking done. Like, right. nobody really wants to hang out. Uh, and be like me, right? And geek out about how how it's all working. How many people really understand electricity? It's like, you know, I, I plug something into the wall and a magical thing happens and the light gets brighter. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. Yeah, like I'm not going to draw, you know, huge audiences at a cocktail party of people that want to. <laughs> I'd come listen to you. <laughs> maybe, maybe the right cocktail party, right? <laughs> or the wrong one. Where people really want to hear all these intricacies. Um, that's okay, right? Like there are a group of people that are trying to move this forward uh, in the right way. But when you think about business, there's a lot at stake here. For banks, there's. Um, I'm just going to call it like the overhead to do this and do it right. You know, even pre-regulation, um, this is something that we need to do. Um, and so, and then when you look at fintech, like we should think of this as the raw material that makes their, you know, app or process work. You know, think about it. You've got to register the client. So I need to know who's the client. Yeah. Most of these fintech apps work with linking some kind of bank account Take uh, your, a cryptocurrency wallet, for example. How are you funding that wallet? Well, you're connecting your bank or some kind of payment. Um, that is an example of open banking, right? Where you are connecting your bank yeah. uh, to your crypto wallet and you're going to fund that account. And so I think there's a lot at stake for banks and fintechs right now because banks are regulated and it doesn't really, not that I've seen right now, add anything to their bottom line. Sort of the, the ones that stand to maybe lose the most as we sit here today um, are banks. But, but the other side of that is if they don't keep up, they don't catch up, they're just going to keep losing business to these fintechs that, you know, as we standardize these things, I use the analogy of probably wrongly of electricity plugging in. But as you're speaking, I'm thinking more of water. Right. When I turn on the tap, uh, I'd like to know whether I'm in, you know, Flint, Michigan or or the Rocky Mountains and I'm getting pure water. And so to your point, this is happening behind the scenes. It may be a bit sub rosa, a bit out of sight, but it doesn't make it unimportant. And as both for the fintechs, but I should imagine also for the banking institutions, they're becoming part of an ecosystem. And we want to make sure that that ecosystem has some integrity to it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, let's let's imagine a world where a bank said, no, I don't want to play. You know, I'm not going to open up. I'm not going to share. I'm not going to be a part of what I'm just going to call the fintech ecosystem. Well, then you're not going to be relevant, right? You're going to go to whatever your favorite affinity fintech app is, and you're going to scroll to look for your bank. It's not going to show up, and you're going to at some point, these things are so much a part of your financial life. You're going to say, I need a bank that does this. I need a bank that's crypto friendly or, you know, uh, electronic payment friendly or whatever it is. Like the risk of not doing this, if you're a bank, is you become irrelevant, right? You've got, like like I said, you, you've got to make a decision to play. And if you're going to play, you have to do it right. 
uh, and that means certain things. Yeah, you know, it's uh, you mentioned crypto a few times. Uh, I'd love to have you back sometime. That becomes a, an entire rabbit hole, I think, when we start talking about illicit transactions that are leveraging crypto to be able to you know, engage in, in naughty or downright unlawful behaviors. And, and I think that opens a whole nother can of worms. But as we're talking about this, you know, I'm reflecting on, on what I've heard from you. I can't help but to think that security plays a pivotal role in all of this, right? So if you wouldn't mind, speak to that a little bit. Is, is security a factor? I should imagine it is in ensuring that these transactions have integrity, that, that we're able to keep privacies, that we're able to ensure that these transactions are really happening with the intended institution, that when we talked about these intermediaries and disintermediating, we don't know unless there's sufficient security, that there isn't some, you know, man in the middle type of an attack or somebody getting in the way of these conversations. So is that something you spend time thinking about is the security of these transactions? All day, every day. Security sits in the middle and is the thing that makes this possible um, at all. Um, None of these external APIs or any of this would see the light of day if um, security teams all over the place, right, weren't spending pretty much every waking moment trying to figure out what are the security standards, what are the protocols, what is the monitoring, I mean, soup to nuts in order in order to try to do this securely. And even then, you know, there there's still concerns, right? Of did we really, you know, secure this enough? Did we think about everything? And sure. you know, I'm sure there's plenty of people that sit bolt upright in bed. <laughs> at 3 a.m. because they figured like, oh, you know, there's uh, the loophole. But, you know, I can't impress enough that, you know, being able to follow the existing regulations that exist in the banking system, even in this environment, is, you know, paramount and doing it securely. That's why I said, you know, to come full circle, rarely is it the technology. You know what I mean? It is the wielding of the technology and all of like the people change that has to happen uh, to bring this about. I mean, think about third party risk management in this environment where these are not vendors to the bank, right? This is a third party, the client chose. Um, You know, banks are used to having a lot of control and vetting anyone they do business with and going through assessments. You can even do on-site assessments. You're familiar with all of this, right? Yeah, yeah. This is, you know, a non-vendor third party that you're trying to securely do business with and attest that you're in compliance with all of the um, regulations. The regulations, but even the best practices beyond the regulations. Are we just doing what we're mandated to do? We're doing what we should do. You know, as you say that, I'm reminded we have locks on our doors and windows and and an alarm system in our house. They don't do a darn bit of good unless we actually lock the doors and turn on the alarm system when we go to bed at night or when we leave the house. And so many organizations, I think you're exactly right. It's not that the technology doesn't exist. It's being able to engage the people or the organization or the culture or the strategy or the whatever it is, the operate with those technologies. And that sort of, I think, brings us full circle to your expertise in helping to tie these things together. And I think that becomes a very fair place to sort of bring this back to. So given that stance, given where you are, and let's for a moment not talk about this uh, vast encyclopedic knowledge you have 
about digital banking, open banking, uh, these arenas in technology. Let's talk more about what would be your guidance to an organization for how they can start doing a better job of this, right? From a strategic chair, from an operations chair, from tactically, practically. Look, there's a lot of people listening today who are either executives or owners in SMBs and small and mid-sized businesses. The Fortune 50, 500, even 5,000, they've got teams of great people who are doing some of this. But there's also aspirational or current fintech owners who, or or investors or employees who are listening to this. What's your guidance to them for what they should start thinking seriously about? I would say for those that are hoping to play in this ecosystem, you know, just educate yourselves. A lot of people don't know that there's sort of this financial services industry led um, set of consortiums like financial data exchange. And so if I were on the other side, I was working with a fintech, I would want to say, hey, you mean there are, you know, standards that exist? Are there standards that exist for the APIs that I want to enable? You can kind of save yourself a lot of heartache, if you will, uh, at not trying to go at it alone and develop your own standard because, you know, APIs, um, you know, can require a fair amount of rework, right? If you get pretty far down the road before you realize like, oh, hey, wait, no, this is how we're going to integrate. So I would probably just save yourself some of that pain. Uh, if you don't already have a lot of integrations and go and educate yourself, what is the financial data exchange doing? What are some of the minimum requirements that a bank may require of you, you know, for some type of like vetting? What kinds of agreements do you need to be prepared to sign? And, and those kinds of things, because there is this playbook, if you will, uh, that's starting to emerge to figure out how to do this. Um, it's not, you know, sort of um, set in stone where you can go around and say, hey, this is the playbook for every type of API. Like sure. we're going to be further along for how to exchange, you know, deposit transaction information than we are going to be with how to do a wire transfer because of the sensitivities around wire transfers. Right. But the point is, is that we don't have to do this in a vacuum. You know, they're starting to be you know, collaboration amongst financial services and fintechs to really try to make this happen in the most secure way possible for our mutual clients. Because think about it, we're now in the ecosystem together. These are our mutual clients. Yeah. You know, I think it's such an important point. A friend of mine used to be fond of making the point that opportunity abides in the unknowns, that if we had perfect clarity around these things, it becomes merely a commodity. But what you're talking about, Julie, is really for the entrepreneurially minded out there. And I'm not just talking about people who want to start up a fintech, though certainly to them, but I'm talking about even to the people who are intrapreneurial, right? Working within their institution, within their organization, within their ecosystem, whatever it is, to start thinking about the new opportunities that present themselves to be able to resolve some of these challenges, some of these difficulties. You know, uh, the digital age and digital as it comes to finance in particular, is going to present all kinds of new challenges, all kinds of new obstacles, I think. Many of the the frictions, the frustrations, the feuds between buyers and sellers and consumers and companies, all that, those things are not going to change. And so how can we leverage, I think would be part of your message, these, these newfound technologies, new capabilities to safely, more efficiently, more effectively create mechanisms for 
communicating, handshaking, transacting between entity A and consumer B or entity C and entity T, right? And so how do we use this technology smartly, effectively to make uh, uh, just a better game for us all to transact in and work with? Is that fair? Yeah, you know, I've heard it described as its simplest, uh, and I love this analogy, as Lego blocks. APIs can connect in the same way Lego blocks can connect. We can connect company A to company B, company, you know, B's process to C. You know, APIs are just the Lego blocks that are going to make uh, new business models run, right? And so I'd probably be remiss if I didn't, um, I guess, balance the scales out a little bit in my comments about banks versus fintechs by not pointing out that it can work the other way too, right? Uh, banks, you know, as we sit here right now are enriching the um, products and services that they offer their clients by going the other way, right? By yeah. using APIs to integrate in fintech apps into their experiences. They're not building everything, Right. And so we don't normally think of that as being, quote unquote, open banking, even though there is no definition. Open banking is kind of thought of us opening up and sharing with fintechs when it's the other way around. It's just an integration. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. I love that analogy of Lego building blocks, too. It's why do they work? Because they are standardized, because they're interconnectable. And because with just a few blocks, you have infinite possibilities. You know, you get uh, 10 blocks of five colors each, you have, you know, millions of possible combinations that you can put together already. Julie, this has been remarkable. I, I feel so much smarter <laughs> about this after talking to you, if my head isn't exploding a little bit. Uh, but uh, this has been sensational. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I hope we can have you back sometime to chat a little bit more. And particularly, I'd love to Talk to you more about the darker side of this. Talk about crypto. And look, I think crypto has a lot of very positive possible opportunities, but there is a dark side there too. And I think I'm from what I'm hearing from you, it's the same thing to be said about digital banking, about open banking. And this notion of, you know, it's brought with peril, but full of opportunity for us potentially as well. I think that's well said. I thoroughly enjoyed this and I would welcome the opportunity to talk with you at any point. Uh, and glad I could just, you know, share some of what I call my cocktail knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to go have a cocktail. No, <laughs> this has been great. Thanks very much, Julie. Uh, always enjoy talking to you. Take care. Thanks, you too.